0: Amen. I'm ready to go home. (laughs) My heart is full. What a blessing. Uh, I'm still going to preach the word just so you know, so you don't don't get up to leave. Uh, If you guys would like to bow with me in prayer, I'd like to go before the Lord in thanksgiving and prayer for the sermon to come. Holy Father, uh, thank you for your kindness and your goodness to us. Thank you for the ISIS family. Lord, you can get to know them. Uh, sometime in 2021, in the wintertime, Lord, and how they've come in and been an integral part of our church. What an exciting day today for Anthony, Lord. Watch over him and keep him, uh, fill him more fully with your spirit. Allow him to walk in your ways. I pray those who even saw the testimony of baptism today, who are, who are your sons and daughters who have not done that act, Lord, that they would be encouraged, uh, exhorted to follow, follow that example. Lord, I I pray for those who are here today who don't know you, uh, Lord, that they would have their hearts uh, opened um, to the word I'm about to speak to you, the act of of baptism reminding us, Lord, that you you were buried, you went into the grave, and you rose again to new life. Oh, Lord, I pray by your Spirit you would take uh, your scriptures, Lord, and you speak through me. You would lift up the name of Jesus Christ, and you receive the glory and honor to your name. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 If you have a Bible, if you'd like to open up to uh, 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, one of Paul's letters towards the end of, the, of your Bible, back in the Bible. Uh, 1 Timothy, last week we looked at the background of 1 Timothy. It was a letter of Paul, Apostle Paul, to Timothy. We looked at the greeting we looked at, and even I, I kind of took the greeting and applied the gospel to it. And I says, "Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord." And today we'll kind of start to go into the the meat of the letter, if you will, after his greeting, and we'll just kind of ask the question: Does it relate to us today? Like we're reading this this letter that was written from Paul to Timothy. It's written almost two thousand years ago. Does it relate to us today? Well, it talks about what we're going to see today. It talks about doctrine. Good doctrine or bad doctrine. Like, do we have that problem or that situation within the evangelical church today? That there's some who are teaching bad doctrine, some are teaching good doctrine. I think we, we do. It talks about the false teachers in the church. Lots of words sounding spiritual. Is that something that we can see today? But then also it talks about, like, what is the good pattern in which to follow? What's the way it should look like? What should be kind of the the core of the ministry? And so, of course, we want to do that today. So I believe it does speak to us very clearly. I'm going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 1, looking at verses 3 to 7 this morning. If you guys want to stand with me, we'll read God's Word together. and his sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they they make confident assertions. May God bless his word to our souls this morning. You can have a seat. So again we're looking at the beginning of of the letter of first timothy written to a, a young leader it's actually a pretty strong church they had elders already established right paul spent like three years in ephesus and so you think like why did they have these problems that they did but they did and so this morning we want to look at like the command that we found we find in scripture paul's command to timothy you want to see the culprits Now we're in the church, we're going to be looking at them as we go through the letter, ongoing, like what were they teaching, what were they about? And then we want to look at the charge that's given to Timothy, which I believe is for all of us who are following Christ as well. So first we're going to look at the command given to Timothy in verse 3. Paul starts off, he says, As I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Again, that's where Timothy was. He was in Ephesus. There was an established church there. Apparently, they had elders, yet, there were huge problems. Some people had worked their way within the church or the church leadership and were teaching uh, things contrary to the word of God. That, that word that Paul uses is I urged you when I was going to Macedonia. It sounds very soft. Apparently, um, it's a command in the form of a request. Almost like parents with young children. When we say, hey, could you clean your room? And our kids are like, No, like that really wasn't a question, actually. (laughs) There's lots of uh, child analogies at the time of life that I'm in. (laughs) So Paul Paul's urging he wasn't like, hey, if you think you could, maybe you could. Like he's like, it was a very kind and a gentle way to say it, but like I've already told you. Think about Paul's gentleness. He was an apostle. He could have said, do this because I'm an apostle of the Lord. Period. Instead, with gentleness and kindness, he urged him to do what he had already talked to him about doing. I just think that's something that we should mark. Interesting, MacArthur also notes this, that he's urging... Timothy to remain at Ephesus, almost implying that Timothy, he knew what he was supposed to do, but maybe he was overwhelmed with the circumstances and was contemplating going. He's like, I I don't know if I can actually do this. So Paul, right at the start, wants to remind him, no, no, you're to remain at Ephesus. This is what you're to be about. Interesting, at the, the start here of 1 Timothy, most of Paul's letters, after he does a kind of his general introduction, he prays. He talks about how he's been praying for that church, for that individual. Here he just jumps right in to what he's talking about. There's serious issues that need to be dealt with. Not only remain at Ephesus, but that you may charge certain persons, not to teach any different doctrine, that word charge or instruct is a command there are words to be obeyed. You, we actually see that word this, this charge I can take you through you 're just going to note that throughout the letter there 's all these charges that either Timothy is to take to people or Timothy is to obey himself or the church is to obey. If you just went through the letter and started highlighting all the time, you saw charge or command over and over again, so even though it 's gentle there 's this, this level of authority that 's brought. Hey, this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to stay where you are. And you're supposed to command these people or charge these people not to teach. Interesting that it goes immediately to teaching. If you think about that, teaching is the first thing that's addressed because of the influence and the reach of teaching. Right? James 3.1, in his letter, right? Like, brothers, not many of you presume, should presume to be teachers. Because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. There's this influence that teachers have and that these these false teachers were having. And so Paul, the first thing he wants to clarify, charge certain persons not to teach anymore. They're teaching a different doctrine. They're teaching a different doctrine. Friends, I think this is such an applicable word to us today. 2 Timothy 4 verse 3 to 4 says this. I think this is the day and age in which we live For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, very similar to sound doctrine, but will have itchy ears. And they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into mist. That's Paul's kind of warning in 2 Timothy. I think that's the day and age in which we are in. That people are actually like, I don't like the way that sounds. I'm going to go find someone who's going to say it the way I like it. Warning certain people not to teach a different doctrine. Robert Yarborough writes this. Evidently, this is a word Paul coined. He kind of created this word. It means teaching that deviates from a standard. For Paul to write this word implies that there were doctrinal norms in place already in the first century. If you think about that, if you can teach, like, don't teach a different doctrine, then the question is, like, what is the doctrine you should be teaching. If they're teaching something that's contrary to it, what is it that they should be? We'll touch on that. This is throughout the letter of 1 Timothy. He highlights this. What is sound doctrine? 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul writes this. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The word of truth is sound doctrine. Again, in 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 to 4, Paul writes this, Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels, the words which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. So what is sound Doctrine. How do, you, how do you know what sound doctrine is? Is it, is it like whatever makes you feel good? You're listening, you're like, ah, I don't know, I think I, I, think I like that. Or, or maybe if the person who's sharing just looks sincere. Like, is, is that what characterizes sound doctrine? Someone's speaking, They're like, I looked them in the eye. And a tear in their eye. This must be true. No, it's, it's whatever lines up with the Word of God right? Whatever accords with the teaching of Jesus Christ, we saw there in 1 Timothy 6.3. Whatever lines up with the apostles' teaching in Acts 2.42. We'll see. Whatever lines up with the gospel in 1 Timothy here 1 at the end of 10 to 11. Friends, if we want to know what is sound doctrine, know what is true, that's where you need to focus. You don't have to focus on everything. Is this false? Is this false? Can we trust that? If you know what is true, you'll be able to see clearly what is false. That's why, even as we get together in the, in this morning, as we worship on a Sunday morning, I'm like, open up your Bible with me. Because my message, I wanted to take from this text here. And I want to bring you other scriptures that will back up with the, what I'm saying. So that like, this is not my opinion. This is the Word of God. And if you hear what I'm saying, but you don't find what I'm saying, ask me, talk to me. That's why I want to try to give you scriptures to back up what I'm saying. There's even, I was texting with a brother this week from last week's message, and he was just asking me like, hey, wh- where in scripture did you find that? It was a great conversation, just kind of back and forth. Like, oh, I was thinking about these texts, and this is what I meant. And I welcome those conversations. Because if, if we're not to teach... A different doctrine Then we are to know what is sound doctrine. So Timothy had this command to stay where he was and to call these, these false teachers. They needed to stop teaching. That was one thing that he was commanded to do. And who are these people and what were they teaching? We're gonna look at that just a little bit. We'll unpack that as we get in the letter. we we'll look at who are the culprits in the church. We can continue there in, in verse 3 and on to verse 4. Again, they're charged certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations. That's what they're doing. They're devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies. And, and what is that? Again, he gives warning about this later on in the letter in 1 Timothy 4.7. He says this, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, this contrast. William Mount says this, by calling them myths, Paul is pointing out their legendary and untrustworthy nature. It's implicitly contrasting with the gospel that is rooted in historical events. Think about these genealogies. One commentator says it refers to the content of teaching and takes the discussion to the realm of Jewish use of Old Testament accounts of biblical characters or speculation based on Old Testament family trees. There's speculation and vain discussion, myths and genealogies to give the impression of knowledge. Right? Like there's this hidden thing within the Old Testament that you've never heard of before. And I have this teaching. If anyone comes to you and says, there's this teaching Within an obscure passage of the Old Testament, no one's ever heard before, you should question that immediately. But that's what was being presented to the church at Ephesus, these myths and genealogies. And of course, if you've been with us for a time, you know, if you were in Genesis with us, we love genealogies. (laughs) Because genealogies are there ultimately to point to the Messiah, but they were taking maybe specific names and family trees and and, and maybe calling people to have a special anointing. We don't know exactly what it looked like. But basically by their knowledge of these things. They, they were grabbing an authority over people. And all it was leading was what? To speculation. Think about how strong there's a warning here in Titus. In Titus 3, 9-11. Paul writes this. Avoid foolish controversies genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. What a strong warning. Of course, we want to question again what we're reading in Scripture. We want to know what's in the text. But someone who wants to continue to like just... Fight about something that there's no substance there. I want to keep bringing it back to you. I want to keep distracting away from what we can know for certainty, instead to go to something that's speculation, It's a vain discussion? Warn them. Eventually you have nothing to do with them. Philip Tanner writes this: Thus myths and genealogies describe an untruthful teaching with an ethical dimension. It was probably aimed at authenticating questionable practices by rooting them in Old Testament history can look at, at verse 6 with me. These certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. The certain persons, it's mentioned in verse 3, it's mentioned in verse 6. And I want you to hear this warning today. Later on, it uses the word some in 119. He says this by rejecting the some have made shipwreck of their faith. In 4.1, he says this, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. In 5.15, he says, some have already strayed after Satan. And again, in in 6.10, he used that language again. I wonder, is there some among us who God with this message would call back to himself, would call back to kind of the straight and narrow road There's some that need to hear this. It says of these people that they're swerving from these, swerving from what is sound doctrine. They've wandered away into vain discussion. If you imagine, like the Christian road, it says it's a narrow one. Few find it. They enter in through Jesus Christ. But it says these people have wandered off. They've swerved away from what is good, what is true, into what is. Meaningless. What is fruitless discussion? I I wonder if the time that we've been in, if if church online has contributed to vain discussion, to fruitless discussion. And when I say church online, that's an oxymoron. The church cannot be online because the church is one that gathers. You can watch a sermon, you can listen to a sermon online, but you cannot do church online. Because even the Greek word, it means the gathered ones. The assembled ones. But I wonder if everyone separate in their home, watching the screen, has led to vain discussion. Has led to fruitless things. It says of these these teachers in verse 7, they're desiring to be teachers of the law. Without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. It's interesting, this term, teachers of the law. Robert Yarborough says this, the only other two New Testament uses of this word refer to one, men who taught the Mosaic Law in Jesus' setting, and then two, Gamaliel, who instructed Saul prior to his conversion. Like actually, godly men who knew the Scriptures. That's what teachers of the Law were supposed to be, but it's clear that these, these ones, they, they taught the Law, they talked about things that they knew not what? They had no idea what they were talking about. They had devoted themselves to myths found in Old Testament history, endless genealogies, promote speculation. It reminds me of the Athenians. Athen. Can't say that word. Those from Athens. <laughs> the Athenians. I can't. Okay. Those from Athens. In Acts chapter 17, verse 21, Paul's writing this about those who are in Athens. Now, the Athenians, there you go, and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or having something new, hearing something new. That's all they want to do is spend their time. That's what reminds me of There's these false teachers. They're like tickling their ears. They're talking about things. They're speculating. They're never actually arriving on truth. We have to be weary of that. If, If all we're doing is studying, like, here's the Word of God, and we're like walking around it and going into areas that like who knows what, and we spend our time over there... Can be troubled but these teachers are always talking never arriving at the truth that's that isn't that the wisdom of our day though again to question everything and you and you sound smart and it's like really is that does it really say that do you really mean that and people are like wow well, this person's is pretty smart these people pretended to have a secret truth that has never heard before. They just had speculation. So what's our, what's our answer to that? If we see that within the churches of even today, if people maybe just landing on things, you're like, I don't even know. I've never even heard that verse before And talking. We don't want to land on speculation. We want to land on the stewardship of God, sound doctrine, God's ministry, God's way. If you look at me the end of verse 4 again and verse 5, I want us to see then now the charge to Timothy to follow, which is love. If you look at verse 4 with me again, so Paul's warning not to do these things which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. That's what we want to be about, not speculations, but the stewardship of God. This word You might have it translated differently. It's a a little tricky word, kind of in the Greek. Other translations have, instead of stewardship, maybe God's plan. Or administration of God. It's a word that can be like something to be managed, something to be watched over. And where else it's used in Scripture? In Ephesians 3.2 and Colossians 1.25, Paul uses it to talk about stewarding his ministry. Like God gave him this calling, this ministry to the Gentiles, and he was to steward it, be a a manager over it. In 1 Corinthians 9.17, Paul uses this same word to talk about stewarding the gospel, the message of salvation. In Ephesians 1.10 and 3.9, the same word talks about God's plan of salvation. In 1 Peter 4.10, it talks about stewarding the gifts of God's grace that He's given us within the church. And in Titus 1.7, this word is used of leadership within the church, talking to elders. And it's like, well, what? how do you describe this word? I believe it's like God's stewardship of all these things that is given to the church. We're to steward the message of the gospel. We're to steward the ministry that we have. We're to steward eldership, leadership, what a high calling. We're to steward each one of us have gifts and abilities within the church. Not speculation, but the stewardship of what God gives us. I believe it's all these combined. William Mount says this, The troublemakers in the Ephesian church were church leaders. Those who had been appointed stewards, using the language of Titus 1-7 over God's household. Instead of pursuing this office through faith, they define salvation in terms of their mythical reinterpretations based on Old Testament genealogies. Therefore, Paul offsets speculations with, a, with what the opponents were producing with stewardship, what they should have been accomplishing. And again, what is it? It's by faith. The stewardship from God that is by faith. Good definition of faith found in, in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hope for, the conviction of things not seen. Just think about it. it's The conviction of things not seen, but they're real. It's not just like pie in the sky faith. Like I don't, I'm just believing like in something. No, we're believing in something of substance, but yet we just cannot see it in front of us. That, that is faith. And I love this. Look, what is the aim in verse 5? The aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Friends, I pray that even as I've been speaking, that God's word is a mirror to your soul. The Spirit's been convicting, encouraging, exhorting as He needs to be. I pray in verse 5 that God's word will continue to be a mirror. As I've been going through this all week, I've been praying lots. Things exposed in my heart and my life. Look at this. The aim, the goal is what? Is love. The goal is love. Galatians 5:6 says, For in Christ, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, only faith working through love. We all know Matthew 22, 37 to 39, but hear it again. Hear the living word of God. What does Jesus say? He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. I don't know, maybe some of you have that memorized. Do you? I, had, I couldn't go past that. I'm like, do I love God with all my heart, my soul, and my mind? No. God help me. No. And we know the second is like it. Matthew 22, 39. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the call. This is the aim. Is that type of love. John 13, 35 says this, Jesus wrote this, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That should be the marker, that should give you away. I don't know if anyone ever grew up with like a Where's Waldo book and his funny little polka dot hat and his funny polka dot shirt. It gave Waldo away. You could always find Waldo. As a Christian hiding in a crowd, what should like give them away is how they love Another. You're like, oh, you can't hide from me, Christian. I see the way you're loving people. I don't know why Christian is hiding in a crowd. That example just came. <laughs> but the type of love that is spoken of, agape love. McCarthy writes this, the love of choice, the love of will, it involves self-denial and self-sacrifice to benefit others. Like, we, we can't just produce that love in ourselves. God has to pour that love into our hearts. So that's the first place it flows from. There's kind of three sources. There's more than that, but in this letter here. But I just, again, I'd ask you, is your, is your life marked by God's love? Do you have love for other people? And if not, why not? It should cause you to pause. It should cause you to search. And the first place really you should search is where Paul goes first. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart. A pure heart, the origin, define the origin of human emotion and instructions. Really it's the mind. Of course, you don't make decisions based on this thing that's beating and pumping blood, but they use the heart in the Bible as like the place where your, your personality was. Intentions of the mind. You know, Psalm 24, 3-4 to four said, Who will ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Psalm 51, verse 10, David, after sinning with Bathsheba, as he writes this psalm, he's repentant. He's like, I've done wrong. He turns to the Lord and he writes, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Friends, there's this promise in the Old Testament throughout Scripture. I'm just going to read Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Before the the Hebrews had even went into the land and and God through Moses had wrote this. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and that you may live. Like God's going to do this work in your heart. It won't just be a bunch of rituals, but at one point God's going to do that. This promise in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Of course, we know this. This happens through Jesus Christ. Matthew 5, 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, they'll see the kingdom of God. But this is through Jesus Christ. Look at Titus 3, 4 to 6 with me, or just listen as I read it. Titus 3, 4 to 6. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That's how we've been given clean hearts. It's through what Jesus did on the cross. And as we look to Him in faith and trust in Him as the Holy Spirit Forgives us and changes us, applies what Jesus did on the cross to our lives, to our heart. That's how we have pure hearts. How do you know you have a pure heart? God's love will flow from it. And again, we need to ask if it's not flowing, is something blocking it? Is there unforgiveness? Is there anger, is there bitterness? What an interesting thing the Lord has done building Redemption Church at this time. We have people from so many different church backgrounds coming together. We've all come from a pretty uh, tumultuous time in life. Is there anger, is there bitterness that needs to be confessed to the Lord that we would again be marked by love? I don't know if any of you have heard of Keith Green, Christian artist, from the 70s, his, his, this song, it's really just Psalm 51 to 10, it's put into song, Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. <laughs> that's the cry of my heart. That's what I, that's what I think you need to do with this scripture, I'll keep saying. you read. We need a pure heart for that love to flow through. Lord, give me a pure heart through Jesus Christ. And we all know what are the things in our life that's stopping us from loving people as we should. But not only a pure heart, but he also says a good conscience. We need a pure heart, a good conscience for this love to flow through. Howard Marshall says, If, if the heart is the origin of desires, the conscience functions to direct, evaluate, and control behavior. Hebrews uh, 13, 18 Just an example of conscience being used in a good way. Wrote this, pray for us where we are sure we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. Desiring to act honorably in all things, like knowing what's the right thing to do and doing it. That will give us a good conscience. But contrast that with having a bad conscience. 1 Timothy 4.2. Again, talking about those some people, in verse 1, who will depart from faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincer- insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Their consciences, like, it, it doesn't work. It's like having a car without brakes. Or a car without a governor, right? A governor is supposed to, like, you know, dictate we can't go past a certain speed. And you're like, oh, there's no governor. I can go 200... 30 or whatever. You're like, yeah, there's a reason there's a governor. There's a reason God would give us a conscience and the more that we're like, I know, I probably shouldn't do this thing and I do it, eventually it like ruins the conscience. You don't have that conviction and you just carry on. Almost again, all these like car analogies but a conscience is like basically when you're driving and you can see this ditch and you can see this ditch and you know you shouldn't go in. But having your conscience gone, a bad conscience, it's like a snowstorm where you you don't know, you can't see it, and you go flying off the edge so easily. Having a guilty conscience, that's if you have sin in your life and you keep carrying it. And eventually your, your conscience is just dead. But how do we want to have a good conscience? It's like when God reveals sin in your life, you need to take it to Him, you need to ask for forgiveness we going to keep short accounts with the Lord. Be sensitive to the Spirit. Even how God, the Holy Spirit, uses the conscience in our lives. Convict us of sin. Keep us on the right path. Do you have a good conscience? And do you yield to it? You know, if, if there's something, you're like, you're going to go watch something. You're like, I don't know. I don't know if I should put this in front of my eyes your conscience. You're going to go buy something. You're like, ah, I don't know if this is the best use of God's resources. Or even how we spend our time. Sometimes I've, I've done things that are good, not sinful in and, of, in and of themselves, but they're done at the wrong time. And so sometimes I've done it and then it's like, oh man, I'm convicted. We've got to follow our conscience. May the Lord give us a good conscience, a pure heart. And lastly... What Paul saying? A sincere faith. a sincere faith." Paul writing in 2 Timothy 1:13, says, "This follow the pattern of the sound words or sound doctrine again that you have heard from me, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. In the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Faith is from Christ, and it is in Christ. Faith is from Christ and is in Christ. When he says, have a sincere faith, like not full of hypocrisy. And again, when I'm talking about faith, it's not like, yeah, just believe. Just this like bland, like somewhere up in the sky, believe type faith. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about not faith in the unknown, not speculations, But rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ in the past, present, and future. In the past of Jesus Christ, what He did on the cross. That it is finished. That He died for our sins, buried in the grave, and He rose again. My faith is rooted in that work. My faith is rooted in Jesus Christ today, presently. He's reigning at the right hand of the Father. He's praying for us. He's interceding us. Interceding for us. And my faith is rooted in the future, Second coming of Jesus Christ. He's coming back again. I pray we would have a sincere faith that our lives, our words would match up. What we say we believe. And of course we all know there's places in our lives where they don't. And then we just, we ask for forgiveness. We pray for his mercy. He gives it. And then again, keep praying, Lord, change my heart. Or give me a good conscience. If you've been, if you've been walking in sin and, and, and you ask for forgiveness, but maybe there's this track, you keep going down, cry out to the Lord for that. Crowd to other people to walk with you through that, to pray with you, to encourage you. William Mount says this: the reigning idea is sincerity. of Verse 5. Love comes from a heart, cleanses sin. A conscience clear of guilt and a faith devoid of hypocrisy. Friends the charge to follow is love. We Christians are to be stewards of of God's ministry to us in the church, in our homes, in our workplaces. We're to be stewards of God's plan of salvation, the gospel. We'll continue to look at that in the weeks to come. In the church we're to be be stewards of the leadership He's placed in us, for Dave, Roger, myself. There's a calling on our lives. Again, the goal, though, is love. We're to be stewards of the gifts that God has given us. We're, church, we're to be marked by love. I would, I would encourage you today, in the, in the days to come, go back to verse 5 and pray through. Make it a, pray, a prayer to the Lord. And ask yourself, do I have a pure heart? Do I have a good conscience? Do I have a sincere faith? Friends, like, we we don't have enough time to just play church. Right? Like, where we're at in the world, I don't know what's going on in your life. Man, we need to walk with the living God. We need reality. And we we take that and, like, Lord, do that that in our lives. I'm praying, Lord, do, do that in my life. He exposed different things in my life. I don't, I don't know, am I always marked by love? No, not always. Lord, change me, change us. I pray. If you'll bow with me, I'll close this word in prayer. Oh God, thank you for your scriptures. I thank you for the clarity you give us. I pray, Holy Spirit, seal this word in our hearts. I pray you renew our hearts. You would give us a a good, a clear conscience, Lord, bring conviction of sin where it needs to happen. Lord, give us a sincere faith. Increase our eyesight to see the Lord Jesus Christ more clearly. God, I pray that the things of the world would lose a grip on our hearts, on our eyes. Oh God, it would be marked by love. I pray you'd minister to each one of us Lord, you know the the pains that we've been through, the things that we're maybe holding and harboring in our hearts. Your mercy, Lord, release us from that. Lord, we want to lay that at your feet. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.